Our scripture is Isaiah 24, verses 1 through 6, the law and the covenant. Isaiah 24, 1 through 6. Isaiah 24, verses 1 through 6, the law and the covenant. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken this word. The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the law, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. Scripture is one word. And as that one word is given age after age, we see it in terms of the incidents in the history of Israel, its crises, the coming of the Messiah, the hatred of him, his death, and his resurrection, the work of the early church. All through this, there is one unchanging word. That word is revealed afresh through all these episodes, through all these events, so that we understand it more fully, more plainly. We see it from the perspective of its various manifestations. So too in our lives. When we are regenerated, we are made new creatures in Christ. But through the years, as we experience many things, trials, temptations, testing, sorrows, and joy, our awareness of the meaning of regeneration grows. We see people fall away. And people we never expected to stand, make a stand and grow. And again, our awareness of that one word deepens. Scripture is one word. And that one word, like a diamond with many facets, is revealed to us through the centuries so that we might better understand the fullness of that word which is given to us in all its fullness in Scripture. Thus there can be no dispensational changing of God's purpose and plan. Thus we do not have an age which is given to law and another to grace, God's dealings remain the same. This comes out clearly when we analyze the relationship of the law and the covenant in the prophets. The prophet Isaiah, for example, indicted Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God as a lawbreaker. The book of the prophet Isaiah begins with an indictment. 
In the tenth verse of the first chapter we read, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Hard language to use concerning Judah and Jerusalem, but used by God. They are told that the curse of the law shall descend upon them because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 5, 24. But this is not all. After the early chapters where we have the bill of indictment brought up and read to Israel, to Judah and Jerusalem, rather, then we have an indictment against all the great nations of antiquity by name, and then against the world in general. The great nations are indicted in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23. All the world's sin, we are told, will be severely judged by God the King, according to Isaiah in chapters 24 through 27. We are told that the judgment on Judah and Jerusalem will be so radical that only a tithe, that is a tenth, shall return. This tenth then shall also be eaten or consumed until only a holy seed shall remain, according to Isaiah 6.13. The judgment on the other nation shall be even more radical. Isaiah 24, verses 1 through 6, in particular, gives us a telling statement of this radical judgment upon the entire world of Isaiah's day. Oh, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. Moreover, we are told in verse 3, the land shall be utterly empty, and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken this word. We have therefore a declaration of radical judgment upon all the nations of the ancient world. Those nations indeed were judged. Nations that were so great and so powerful that their disappearance from history seemed impossible to believe. Ancient conquerors walked over their ruins and were unaware that great empires were under their feet. Historians doubted that some of these great empires even existed until the archaeologists stayed, dug them up, and corroborated the word of God. The reason for this radical judgment is stated in verse 5. The earth also is defiled unto the inhabitants thereof. The earth, the whole world. This comes after the judgment on the specific nations of the ancient world. Then as it looks out to the other nations whom Isaiah has not named by name. Judgment is simply declared on the earth as such because it is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Because they have transgressed the law, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Now this verse is one of the most important in the Bible in understanding the nature of God's law and covenant. Some generations 
ago, one of the greatest biblical scholars ever to live in the United States, Dr. J. A. Alexander, in commenting on this passage, said that all three terms, law, ordinances, statute, and covenant, are equivalent terms. Different terms for the same thing or different sidelights on the same fact. The implications of this are enormous. It means very clearly that God's law and God's covenant not with Israel alone. Truth in a very special sense, Israel was called out. God made a covenant with them, or renewed a covenant with them, made earlier with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham that called him out was God's original covenant with Adam, with Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There are only two kinds of people in the world, therefore. Covenant keepers and covenant breakers. Israel was called out to be covenant keepers. covenant of God. We cannot understand God's dealings in antiquity as recorded in scripture and throughout all history unless we grasp this fact. All men and all nations are tied to the covenant, the covenant of God, to the law of God whether as keepers or breakers. It is called by Isaiah the everlasting covenant. It is everlasting with all men. Hence there is judgment on all men. Hence all men, whether they are the Lord's elect group or those within the covenant or not, are punished. Hell is not reserved only for the covenant members who fall away. All men are circumscribed by the everlasting covenant. Law and covenant are used synonymously in all the Bible. There are differences between the two words, but they are interrelated. Man is tied to God on God's terms. Because the ungodly refuse to recognize the covenant of God does not change the fact that they are inescapably tied to it. Because they treat the law of Moses as ancient nonsense. It does not change the fact that they shall be judged by it. The earth is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore the curse hath devoured the earth. They that are dwell therein are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men left. And this point is of critical importance. The curse that is spoken of here is the curse of the law, Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Those chapters do not deal exclusively with Israel. 
they deal with all men and all nations. They were spoken to Israel, but they cover every man. All men are either covenant keepers or covenant breakers, and they are either blessed or cursed in terms of their relationship to the covenant of our God. As we go through the other prophets, we find a similar situation. Jer uh, Jeremiah gives us a judgment on Judah, but again on the foreign powers in chapters 46 through 51. Judgment is pronounced against Babylon, for example, in chapter 50, verse 14, for she hath sinned against the Lord. Then, Jeremiah proceeds to declare the reverse of the golden rule. It is interesting that liberals are always citing the golden rule as the standard to live by, but they never give us the reverse of it, which we meet with repeatedly in Scripture. Obadiah gives it very emphatically in Jeremiah. Instead of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, God says, Take vengeance upon her, as she hath done do unto her. Jeremiah 50, verse 15, in verse 29. According to all that she hath done do unto her. Against Moab, Jeremiah declares that the word of the Lord is, Cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. Jeremiah 48, 10. Curses of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 are pronounced against all the nations. This is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. Again, in Ezekiel, we have judgment declared upon all the nations in chapters 25 through 32, as well as elsewhere. In Daniel, the four great empires are judged. All the prophets in Greece stress the judgment of all nations because all men and all nations are inescapably tied to God and his covenant, his law. St. Paul sums up this aspect of scripture in Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. He declares that when Israel came to the mountain and they saw the mountain shake and the lightning and the fire, it was an awe-inspiring sight. But he said the contrast between Mount Sinai and Christ is between the lesser and the greater. And therefore, obedience to the greater is all the more mandatory and disobedience all the worse. For our God is a consuming fire. The covenant is an everlasting covenant. All men are in it, either as covenant keepers or covenant breakers. And there can be no covenant without law, nor any law in God's sight without a covenant. The two are inseparable. The covenant and the law go together. Thus, every renewing of the covenant was a renewing of the law. Christ renewed the covenant, he renewed the law of the covenant. The covenant is always a covenant of grace to the redeemed. It is the covenant of death or curses to his enemies. In Isaiah 28, verses 14 to 18, we read, Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. 
Because he has said we have made a covenant with death and with hell, are we at agreement? And the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation of stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled. And your agreement with hell shall not stand. And the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. The covenant with death and hell is the assumption that God's covenant and God's law are not operative. Therefore, men say that we will make a covenant with death and hell. We shall make lies our refuge. Men doubting God rejected the world of law, the world of grace, the world of causality, the world of providence. They declared that instead of God governing the world, Redeeming man by his grace and placing man under his law word, word to walk therein. The world was a meaningless world. And man should walk pragmatically. They were saying, Isaiah says, what Nietzsche more recently has said. That a lie may be the most useful thing a man can make use of. Because in a world without God, there is no meaning, there is no law, there is no truth. Man, therefore, must walk pragmatically. The world is neutral. It does not favor the truth, nor does it favor a lie. And so what Isaiah calls a covenant with death and with hell means that man has made a covenant, as it were, with ultimate meaninglessness. He says because the world has no real meaning, man is just alone in the universe, Therefore, nothing has meaning, and I can do as I please. I move in a neutral world. As God declares in this same passage in verse 22 of Isaiah 28, Now, therefore, scoff no more, but your bondage be aggravated, for of a determined annihilation upon the whole earth, I heard from the Lord of hosts. There is no escape from God, no escape from meaning. Man inescapably lives in God's universe. God's covenant, God's law govern all things. God purposes to overthrow all who to overthrow God and his covenant. Ezekiel said, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right is, and I will give it him. This process of overturning of all covenant breakers of all nations has as its purpose, Ezekiel said, and this is the verse that is the theme verse of Ezekiel that occurs again and again and again. Ye shall know that I am the Lord God. Thus 
the prophets reveal to us that law is the revelation of God and his righteousness, that no revelation is possible without law. For to say that God has no law would mean to say that God has no nature, no person of defined and totally self-conscious person, purpose, nature, or being. There is no essence, no meaning in God. Then no knowledge of God would be possible if the idea of law is rejected. This is what has happened in our day. Barbianism has rejected the idea that there is a law of God. It is denied that there is any law any longer as far as God is concerned. Therefore, it rejects the idea of any determined nature of God, and it speaks of the freedom of God. Now, when Karl Barth speaks of the freedom of God, what he means is that God is free from any law in himself. Today God may say, Thou shalt not kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or covet. But this does not mean that God would say the same thing tomorrow. God cannot be defined by saying, This is the righteousness of God that we meet with in the Ten Commandments. This is the righteousness of God, His grace, revealed to us through Jesus Christ. No, God cannot be so divine. God is free from any nature, so today God may play around with saying, here are the Ten Commandments, try it on for size. And tomorrow he may take the exact reverse of the Ten Commandments and say, let's play around with this for a while. God is not definable. This is why. Because of our antinomianism, that modern antinomian evangelicalism has gone overboard for Barthianism. Thus, Billy Graham recently was cited as declaring, and this was in a recent issue of Harper, that the greatest theological mind of the 20th century was Karl Barth. A few years ago, Eternity magazine again had a growing article on Karl Barth. Go to Fuller Seminary, and it is Karl Barth who again is held aloft as the great mind of this century, a great guide for evangelicals. And the essence of Barth's position was this declaration of the freedom of God from any law, any righteousness that is definable. Such a God cannot be known. Today he may be, or yesterday he may have been the God we know in the Bible. Today he may be what we've always thought the devil was. This is why in evangelical circles there is a radical disintegration. This is why, as the next step in the development of this kind of thinking, and like Hamilton and others of the death of God school said, well, since this God has no nature and he can never be known, how do we even know he is alive? logical step has been the death of God's school of theology. An unknowable God and then a non-existent God. The God of Scripture is a God of law and a God of grace. A 
God who fully defines himself and declares, I am the Lord, I change not. He is a God who binds all men to his covenant. When men and nations depart therefrom, he declares that the earth is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. The very ground is defiled by covenant breakers. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, because they have transgressed the law, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting We who by the grace of God have been called into newness of life and made members of the new creation, we have been reinstated in that purpose to which Adam called. Exercise dominion and to subdue the earth under God in terms of his covenant and his law. And in terms of this and by faith and obedience to church. The blessings and the prosperity of the law are promised to nations and to the people thereof. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that by thy grace manifested unto us in Jesus Christ. Thou hast reinstated us as covenant people and given us grace to keep thy law. Prosper us, O Lord, in thy service. Give us zeal in obeying thee and serving thee in magnifying thy holy name, that we may ever rejoice in thy blessing. See the land again restored unto thy law word and thy ancient. Bless us with this purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now? First of all, with respect to our lesson. Yes. Very good point, yes. The question was, is the wide acceptance of our philosophy a form of punishment upon the nation? It definitely is. Because by accepting Bart, what has happened is this. The anarchism of our day has been radically furthered. It was the last days of World War I that Bart began to write. By the beginning of the 20s, he became the most powerful influence in the churches of Europe and America, and by the 30s, on the churches outside of Europe, all over the world. The consequence of this influence we see today in the radical breakdown of the churches. Carbart today is a power. He passed away recently not only in the modernist churches, but in the so-called evangelical churches, the most single, decisive influence, and a very real judgment upon them. Yes. Israel in the day of our Lord was brought under the worst curse of all history because the fall of Jerusalem and Judea in the Jewish Roman War of 66 to 70 AD was and still is the most fearful disaster in all history. There has never in all history been a war and a disaster as radical as that war. 
Now, today they are still not under the blessing of God. But neither are any of the nations because they have all forsaken and abandoned him. So we've all placed ourselves on the same level. We've all become Judas nation. Yes. Uh, Calvin once said that if God had not preserved mankind after the fall, the whole world would have collapsed in the anarchy. God never allows the implications of the fall to develop to their full extent. But of course, this is what we are trying to do today. The implications of the fall are that every man is his own God, determining for himself what is right and wrong. This means total anarchy. Every man at war with all other men. This is exactly what existentialist philosophy today is pushing the world for. And it's only the grace of God that we do not wind up in that total anarchism. Yes. the 
constitution specified. At that time meant only uh, an oath in terms of the Bible, with the Bible open to Deuteronomy 28. So it was religiously conceived. That was the only thing an oath meant then. And this was emphatically regarded as basic, because at that time the biblical law was the common law of the land. Yes. Well, it all depends on how she meant to. If she meant she continued in Judaism, no. But if she meant she was Jewish in her nationalistic allegiance, yes. Uh, yes. I would have to see the statement because, you see, if she meant the son of man, that meant the Son of God. That's difficult for us to understand, but the Son of Man in Old Testament prophecy definitely meant the Divine One from Heaven. And our Lord always spoke of himself as the Son of Man, which certainly didn't set well with the Pharisees. They accused him of making himself to be one of God. Yes. Yes, that's a very debatable point. Uh, Christ the Liberator has been popular for a century. The uh, abolitionists were the first ones to revive that, to use the image of Christ as a revolutionist. Now, the idea of a liberator is all right, but the connotations they give it, they're taking it out of revolutionary terminology, and it has usually been used by... Uh, revolutionists. Now, the fish was used because the uh, Greek word for fish in the early church was, uh, the letters of it uh, were an anagram or represented Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. However, because the fish had symbolism in some pagan cults as well. It was both a cover-up and it was a dangerous thing to use. After a while, it was abandoned. So it was a two-edged symbol. I think it is preferable to eliminate it. Because while it did have its usefulness in that the fish symbol was a convenient uh, disguise when the church was in the catacombs and a secret organization, and they could take it and make it mean something else. It can also be misinterpreted and does have pagan origin. say it is absolutely uh, a necessity for survival. 
But when you take that out of that context and you continue the symbol, then it's a different thing. So the symbol of the fish in the early church was an excellent cover-up, but it no longer has that significance for us. So we don't need it. Our time is just about up, and there's something I'd like to pass on to you because it is of interest in view of the fact that yesterday was Halloween. This is from Alfred M. Rewinkle's book, The Flood. And I'd like to read a somewhat extended passage because it does make clear what Halloween is. There is another tradition found with many peoples in widely separated areas of both ancient and modern times which bears witness to the historical fact of the flood even to the extent of pointing to the season of the year in which this fearful cataclysm destroyed the human race. That season is the festival of the new year, observed at the disappearance of the Pleiades at the end of October or the beginning of November. Urkel Hart, who reports these traditions, says that a new year festival connected with and determined by the Pleiades seems to be one of the most universal of all customs. It is not only the fact that New Year's Day was observed by so many people at about the same time which makes it significant, but that the observance of this event was always connected with the memory of the dead or was observed as a feast of the ancestors. The natives of Australia, for example, observed this day at about the season mentioned. On this occasion, they painted a white stripe over their arms, legs, and ribs, and dancing by the light of the fire, appear like so many skeletons celebrating. The same custom is found among the savages of the Society Islands, where the closing of the old and the opening of the new year were always celebrated about November. At the conclusion of this celebration, each man returning to his hut is expected to offer a special prayer for the spirit of the departed relative. In the Fiji Islands, the commemoration of the dead takes place toward the end of October. In Peru, the new year came at the beginning of November, and was called Ayamarca, which signifies carrying a corpse. The festival was celebrated in memory of the dead and was observed with songs and music and by placing food and drink upon the graves of the dead. The Hebrews celebrated their Durga, a festival of the dead, which originally was their New Year's Day and was observed on the 17th of November. The Persians called November Mordad, that is, the angel of death and the feast of the dead, which took place at the same time as in Peru and was considered New Year's festival. For the ancient Druids, the night of the 1st of November, in which they annually celebrated the reconstruction of the world, was full of mystery. According to a custom connected with this event, the priestesses were obliged at this time to pull down and rebuild each year the roof of their temple as a symbol of the destruction and renovation of the world. If one of them, in bringing the material for the new roof, let fall her sacred burden, she was seized by her enraged companions and torn to pieces. On this same night, the Druids extinguished the sacred fire, which was kept burning throughout the rest of the year. And at the signal, all the fires in the community were put out. And it was believed that in the complete darkness that followed throughout the land, the phantom spirits of those who had died during the preceding year were then carried by boat to the judgment seat of the God of the dead. A relic of this festival is survived in our present Halloween, Halloween. On the last day of October, an all saints and all souls day on the first and second of November. In former years, the relics were even more numerous in the Halloween torches of the Irish and the bonfires of the Scots and Welsh. While in France, it was customary to visit the cemeteries and graves of their ancestors at this time. The Mexicans to this day observe a day of the dead in much the same way and at the same time. They still place food and drink upon the graves of the departed ancestors as modern travelers in that country have observed. In ancient uh, Egypt and so on, give the great deal more on this, but now it must be admitted that the origin of these strange traditions is not as clearly traced as the flood traditions, and yet there seems to be a connection between these strange events and that great event in the history of the human race. The date of the festival corresponds to the date of the flood. If, as some hold, the year began in the fall of the year. There are others who question this. All these traditions have in common remembrance of the dead, 
which seems to point to a major calamity of the human race. Then there are echoes of a perishing world and the rebuilding of another. Customs and traditions found so widely scattered and with so many people must have their origin in some great experience in the past history of man. There is no common experience of the human race which so well accounts for these strange customs and traditions as the blood. And we may therefore well agree with Erfahart who in concluding his remarks on these traditions said, Here the traditions not only unite in bearing down to our time that awful cry of anguish which once shook earth and sky, but also fixed upon the very month and the very day which the scriptures have recorded. So, uh, he continues and points out the evidences that point to the flood at the end of October and to the common belief all over the world in a flood and the celebration of the dead who died in the flood at that time. The fact that the spirits of the dead who are connected with that event are, and with Halloween are, assumed to be evil spirits also ties in with the traditions of people that it was the world of evil men who died with the flood. This book, which came out in the 50s, is now available also in a paperback. It is well worth getting a read because it does deal more with the traditions and uh, evidences in the various cultures, although it does go into theology to a degree. Yes. The title is simply The Flood. Uh, Alfred M. Rewinkle, R-E-H-W-I-N-K-E-L. No, Genesis Flood is by Whitcomb and Morris. Yes, published by Concordia, now available in a paperback. You should be able to order this from almost any Bible bookstore. Let us bow our heads now for the meditation. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always.